it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 29th of November. It's almost December. 
the weather thinks it is December, and yet somehow there's still one fly in my house who hasn't seen a calendar, and I've been trying to chase the little shite but down for about three days, and I haven't been able to catch him. But I will get him. Don't you worry, I will get him. Um, we had Champions League action last night. Lazio defeated Celtic 2-0. Two late goals by Chiro Immobile, giving the home side the victory and condemning Celtic to a record 15th Champions League game without a win and further continuing Brendan Rodgers' record of being the worst manager in the history of the competition. So congrats to Brendan on that. Uh, Shakhtar Donetsk won. Royal Antwerp nil. Uh, Mikhailo Matvienko with the only goal of the game on 12 minutes. AC Milan won. Borussia Dortmund 3. Oliver Giroud missed an early, early penalty. Marco Royce then scored a penalty. Samuel Chukwesi equalised for Milan to get them back in it just before halftime. Well, five or six minutes before halftime. But then in the second half, Dortmund just decided to take over. Jamie Bonneau Gittens and Kareem Adiemi score. Milan did miss some decent chances. Gregor Kobo made a couple of good saves. Mike Mannion will be furious with himself. I think over both the Beno Gittens and Adiemi goals, but particularly the Adiemi goal, which he just gets his footing wrong and can't get down to make the save. Uh, Feyenoord won, Atletico Madrid three. Uh, Gertruda scored an own goal on 14. Mario Hermoso put Atleti two up on 57. Mats Viefer did pull one back for Feyenoord. But a Santiago Jimenez own goal gave Atleti their two-goal lead back, and they held that until the end of the game. Paris Saint-Germain won, Newcastle United won. Alexander Isak scored on 24 minutes. Really good work from Tino Livermento in the build-up. Kylian Mbappe scored in the 98th minute from a controversial penalty to give PSG the draw. Now, The penalty is controversial, and in my opinion, the penalty is wrong. I don't think it should have been a penalty. The ball comes off Livermento's chest and then his arm, and the penalty is awarded after quite a long review by the referee. But I've seen Newcastle fans say they were robbed. You weren't robbed. In a way, you were, but in in general, you weren't. PSG had 31 shots on the night. Somehow managed only seven on target. A combination of dreadful finishing, incredible luck, and a really, really good performance by Nick Pope are the reasons Newcastle were still ahead. PSG battered them. And I saw someone say it was a tactical masterclass by Eddie Howe. Unless Eddie Howe's tactical plan was to get battered and rely on PSG missing glorious chances. Barcola missed two immense chances that he puts away eight times out of ten. Usman Dembele missed a hat full of chances. Mbappe missed a hat full of chances. Kolo Muani missed a good chance. There's just no way you could look at that game and say it was a tactical masterclass at all. Now, I did hear Newcastle fans moaning that 
They weren't able to make any subs because they didn't have any options on the bench. Lewis Hall was sat on the bench. You're going to pay, I think, 40 million or something close to it to buy Lewis Hall next summer. So the idea that there was nobody on the bench that could have could have come on is simply nonsense. PSG were missing a couple of players as well, but obviously their squad is a lot stronger and they're not as racked by injuries as the tuna are. But they still have to start the Neo Pereira at centre back, which isn't good for anybody. PSG deserved at least a point from that game. So let's not get bogged down in the minutia of was it or wasn't it wasn't it a penalty? There were a couple of other incidents in that game that could have been penalties to PSG. There was one that I thought a bit earlier in the game that I thought was a stonewall penalty and it wasn't given. So maybe this was a bit of a makeup. Um Barcelona 2, Porto 1. Pepe had put Porto 1 up on 30 minutes. Zhao Canseo uh, equalized two minutes later and then Zhao Felix scored the winner on 57 to give Barca what was a well-deserved win. Young Boys 2, Red Star, Belgrade, nil, An own goal from a player whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce. And then Lewis Blum with the second on 29. And it's a big win for Young Boys. And finally, Manchester City 3, RB Leipzig 2. Leipzig went 2-0 up in the first half. Both goals by Lewis Appenda. Both the result of dreadful defending from Manchester City. Ruben Diaz and Akanji and Gvardiol failing to cover themselves in glory. Erling Haaland was a complete non-factor for 53 minutes. On 54 minutes, he scored, as is his way. On 70 minutes, Phil Foden made a 2-2 with a really nicely taken goal. And on 87 minutes, Julian Alvarez got the winner, but only after Fabio Carvalho had what would have been a really nice goal ruled out, but it was ruled out correctly for offside. This is City. They don't need to play for the full 90 against a lot of these teams. 45 will be more than enough for them to win games. Even with Leipzig 2-0 up, you just felt like it was inevitable that City were going to come back and get something from the game and get something they did. So with five games gone, Group E has Atletico Madrid top 11 points, Lazio second, 10 points. They're both through. Feyenoord will finish third. They currently have six points and they will play in the Europa League after Christmas and Celtic are eliminated one point from their five games. Group F, Dortmund are top and they are through. They will play in the knockout phase of the Champions League. They have 10 points. PSG have seven. Newcastle have five. And Milan have five. Milan are bottom of the group. Milan play Newcastle in that final game. A win for either team could see them get through. PSG need to beat Dortmund to be certain of advancing. But given Dortmund are through and can now rest players, it's likely that PSG will win that game. Uh, Manchester City through and top of Group G. 15 points. Perfect record so far. Leipzig. Also through nine points. Young boys, four points, almost certainly now in the Europa League. And then Red Star will be eliminated one point. Um, Group H, Barcelona, 12 points, almost certain to be through. I think they are through, actually. Uh, Porto, nine points. And Shakhtar, nine points. So they'll battle for that second 
knockout spot and the other will go into the Europa League and Antwerp has been eliminated. City play Red Star. Leipzig play Young Boys. Antwerp play Barcelona. Porto play Shakhtar. Celtic play Feyenoord and will hopefully get at least a point. Dortmund play PSG. Atleti play Lazio. Newcastle Milan and Porto Shakhtar are the two games of the final round from those groups. They're the two to keep an eye on. We have games tonight at 5.45, Galatasaray versus Manchester United. Now, as we're aware, Manchester United are bottom of that group and desperately need a result because their last game is home to Bayern. And if United lose, they cannot qualify for the knockout phase. A draw, and they still have a chance, but they need to beat Bayern. They need to win tonight in Turkey. And personally, I I don't have much faith in their ability to do that. Uh, Sevilla take on PSV, also a 5.45 kickoff. And then the 8 p.m.s, Bayern against Copenhagen. Real Madrid against Napoli, Real Sociedad against Red Bull Salzburg, Braga against Union Union Berlin, Arsenal against Lens, and Benfica Inter. I am going Galatasaray win, Sevilla PSV to draw, Bayern to beat Copenhagen, but I think it will be a competitive game, Real to beat Napoli, Real Sociedad to beat Salzburg, Braga to beat Union Berlin, Arsenal to beat Lens fairly comfortably, and Inter to win away in Lisbon. Uh, but we'll see how those games go. We'll talk about them a bit tomorrow. Uh, it is Thursday. No, it's not. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday, so it's Nostalgia Day. And I've been thinking a lot about Luton. Don't ask me why. It's largely because their fans have been a terrible gang of lads and let the club down. And it's not all the fans, obviously. It's not all Luton fans. It's a portion of Luton fans, but it's not a small portion either. It's not a small portion. It's a sizable chunk of their fan base have let that club down multiple times now with the homophobic chanting against Brighton, with the tragedy and poverty chanting against Liverpool. They've let themselves down. They've received... A significant fine for the Brighton incident. I expect there'll be a fine to come for the Luton incident as well, or for the Liverpool incident as well. And it's putting a stain on what should be a a great thing where this club that were in the top flight right up until the season before the Premier League began dropped down and then continued to drop down and went all the way to non-league before working their way back up. Like It's an amazing story what they've been through. And I remember watching the playoff final, and before the playoff final, I picked Coventry to win. I wanted Coventry to win, but I was happy for Luton if it was them because of what they've been through, what their story is. And I've been thinking a lot about that. And then I started thinking about other Premier League, old Premier League clubs that I loved 
to watch that I remember having really fun players over the years. And one of them was obviously Nottingham Forest and they made their return last season after a long period out of the Premier League. You think about clubs like Swindon, Barnsley. You know, I think about a club like Oldham who very similar to Luton in in what happened to them and how they dropped out of the division and what they've been through since. And they haven't had the ups that Luton had. It's been mostly downs for them. But I was going through the different clubs and the one I kept coming back through, back to was the club that Luton beat to get promoted into the into the Premier League. And that's Coventry City. And I thought today's nostalgia, we'll, we'll have a look at Coventry in the Premier League, the first nine seasons of the Premier League. But they weren't just in the top flight for those nine seasons. Coventry were in the Premier League from the 1967-68 season all the way up until 2000-2001. That's an amazing achievement for any club. There's obviously the top clubs who will stay in the division no matter what, but by the time they had been relegated, their tenure in the top flight was only a couple of years shorter than Liverpool's, and it was longer than Manchester United's. They saw United go down and come back up. They saw City go down and come back up. They were a a staple of the top flight. They were someone we thought will be a continued presence in mid-table. If you look at over the years that they were in the division, like Chelsea also went down on three different occasions while Coventry stayed firm in the top flight. And they had mixed success, shall we say. It's not like a thing where Coventry were, you know, challenging for the title in a lot of years or in any year, really. But they were a continued presence in the division. Now, they were largely bottom half, but the odd season they'd sneak in a top half finish. And then in 1986-87, they won the FA Cup. And that's, I would say, it's fair to say, that's the greatest moment in certainly modern Coventry City history. They beat Tottenham 3-2 after extra time. Goals from David Bennett, Keith Hoochin, and a Gary Mabbott own goal, which is what won them the cup. Mabbott had scored earlier in the game for Spurs. Clive Allen had scored the opener. Bennett scored. was 1-1 after 10 minutes. Mabbott put Spurs 2-1 up, up just before half time. Hoochin scored about 16, 17 minutes into the second half. Went to X time and Mabbitt scored again. And you look at that Coventry team that played that day, and there's a couple of standout names. But the two that jump out at me are Cyril Regis and Steve Grisovich. Now, Steve Grisovich was a really good goalkeeper. Chesterfield spent five years at Liverpool, played for Shrewsbury. Joined Coventry in 84 and stayed with them until 2000. 
played well over 500 games to them. This is a guy who could have been a professional cricket player, but decided to focus in on football. And in his time at Liverpool, won two European Cups as the backup goalkeeper. Winning the FA Cup with Coventry is the highlight of his career because he was such an important part of that team. Cyril Regis was a legend at West Brom. Sensational player. Moved on to Coventry, played for Villa, played for uh, Wolves, did a little tour of the clubs in the Midlands, uh, then played for Wickham and Chester. Passed away nearly six years ago. Only 59 when he passed away. Five caps for England. Should have won a lot more caps for England. But at the time, black players didn't really play for England. He was only the third black player to ever play for England. After Viv Anderson, who's one of the best fullbacks English football ever produced, and Laurie Cunningham, who was a ridiculously talented winger, who had also played for West Brom when Cyril, with Cyril Regis. He'd moved from West Brom to Real Madrid, and then he'd had a little bit of a tour of Europe. Passed away far too early at the age of 39, Back in 1989, he was killed in a car crash in Madrid. Um, But they're the calibre of players that Coventry had back then. Like, they're really good players. And when we take a look at the history of the club, they've won the second division title. They've won the third division title twice. They won the old third division south. They won the old fourth division, which is obviously now League Two. Um, They won the FA Cup. He won the EFL trophy recently. It's not a club that have won a huge amount of honours. That FA Cup stands out a mile in terms of what they did, and that kind of propelled them a little bit towards the start of the Premier League era. So we go into the first season of the Premier League. They're managed by Bobby Gould. Very, very good manager of his time. One of those... Mid-table managers, but not like a not like a grok type. Didn't play the dinosaur football. Wanted to get the ball down and play. And if we look at the players that they had, we've obviously just spoken about Steve Grisovic. Uh, Phil Bab was in the squad. Phil Bab would obviously go on and play for Liverpool. Would play an important role for Ireland for a number of years. Certainly wasn't as good as he appeared at the 94 World Cup. But Coventry bought him for 500000 just before the start of the Premier League and sold him to Liverpool two years later for $3.6 million. So uh, an investment that really did work out very well for them. Also in that squad, David Boost, who suffered one of the most horrific injuries in the history of the Premier League, maybe the most horrific, You've probably seen it or heard about that injury. If you haven't, I don't recommend looking it up. It is awful. It it was so bad that Peter Schmeichel got sick on the pitch from just having seen it. And there was sheer panic from both sets of players at what they were witnessing. You had one of my favourite 90s players who, in retrospect, I should have included in my favourite left-wingers yesterday. 
Peter Unglove, Zimbabwean winger, 100 caps for his country. He was so much fun to watch. He was linked with Liverpool forever. Every summer, Liverpool are going to sign Peter Unglove. Liverpool are going to sign Peter Unglove. And they never did, which is a shame. Um, his post-career life has been a little bit controversial at times. Uh, he was recently discovered to have had 13 different children. And um, that's that's quite the number. They're not all with the same woman. They're with multiple women. That's fine. But 13 kids is 13 kids. And he's apparently reneged on um, child maintenance payments for a few of them. So he'd like him to get his, his act together there. But he was a very fun player to watch. Another one that was always fun to watch was Roy Wegerly, the USA International. He played for Chelsea, he played for Swindon, he played for Luton, played for QPR, was very good there, played for Blackburn, it didn't quite work out. Came to Coventry, it didn't work out, but he was a he was a good player. He was an interesting player. He was very talented. He was quite a modern player. You know, if you put Roy Wegerly into today's game, I think he'd adapt really well into that kind of second striker role. Roy Wegerly was like a poor man's Teddy Sheringham, but he was often miscast as a number nine. But that was a good team. Paul Williams, another decent player in that squad. Keith Rowland was a decent player. At the time, they owned Kenny Sampson, but he was out on loan. Um, I think they I think they might have sold him. They, they might have loaned him and then sold him to Everton. Um, Robert Rosario and Kevin Gallagher also left the squad during the season. They signed Mickey Quinn, who I spoke about recently um, when I was talking about 90s strikers. They brought him in from Newcastle for 250000 They finished 15th. They went out in the third round of the FA Cup. They went out in the second round of the League Cup, and Mickey Quinn scored 17 goals. They played at Highfield Road, which is one of those great old grounds that's unfortunately no longer with us. It was uh, closed in 2005 and demolished in 2006, but Highfield Road was just one of those great old English stadiums. It had quirks, it had idiosyncrasies, it had a great atmosphere, it had a woeful pitch. If you see pictures of games or watch games at Highfield Road in the 90s, it looks like someone's driven tractors up and down. It's all caught up and torn up. Now, a lot of pitches were like that. We didn't have the, the drainage systems we do now. We didn't have the under-soil under heating that we do now. And the pitches would retain a lot of moisture and they would cut up quite easily around the goal, in both goal mounts and the centre circle in particular. But oftentimes you'd see Highfield Road and it would literally be from one end line to the middle, right the way up the up the middle. On the on the flanks, luscious grass. You never seen such green grass. But all down the middle would just be muck and what my mother would term as gullion. Now, on the side, is muck and gullion just an Irish saying, or does anyone else know that saying from a different country? And if so, Regardless of whether it is just Irish or it is something that's said in England, America, wherever it is you're listening to from the, to this from, what's gullion? 
Because I keep meaning to ask my mother and I keep forgetting. I'd love to know what we term as gullion. Muck, I understand. Gullion, I'm a, I'm a little bit lost on, but that's an aside. Either way, if you played on Coventry's Highfield Road pitch in the 90s, you were going to come in covered in muck and potentially gullion as well. We'll move on to 93-94. Bobby Gould leaves on the uh, 23rd of October. It's a surprise decision. He wasn't under pressure. He wasn't at risk of being sacked. But he made a decision to step down as manager of Coventry. Um, he would re-emerge a couple of years later as manager of Wales. We'd manage Cardiff, Cheltenham Town and Wymouth to middling success. But it was always a little bit strange that he stepped down when he did. He hadn't yet turned 50 and he seemed to have quite a good career ahead of him. But unfortunately, it didn't quite work out for him. Um Taking over from him was legendary Liverpool fullback Phil Neal. Now, Neal had been manager of Bolton to fairly middling success um, for seven years. He'd had some ups, some downs. He was sacked on the 8th of May, 92. And on the 23rd of October, 93, he reemerges as manager of Coventry City. That season, Coventry would finish 11th. They'd go out in the third round of the FA Cup, the third round of the renamed Coca-Cola Cup. And Undlove would be their top scorer with 11 goals. Um, Some notable additions to the squad. Uh, Mick Harford. Big, bundling donkey of a centre-forward. Effective, a Luton legend in many ways. I think he spent six years there and then had a second spell after a brief stint with Derby. Um, Arrived at Coventry following a failed spell at Sunderland and had a very brief and failed spell with Coventry City where he played only once. Um, Has become known in recent years for his work with Luton off the field. Um, Peter Atherton, another interesting addition. He was a solid defender for a long, long time. Played for Wigan, Coventry, went on to Sheffield Wednesday, where he's probably best remembered for. Um, a, a, a second Paul Williams appeared on the scene um, and was pretty decent. Terry Fleming arrived, Craig Middleton, David Smith, Mickey Glynn, Mickey Ginn, and Peter Billing, uh, no relation to Philip Billing, uh, left the club. Um, a nondescript season, but to finish 11th in the Premier League for Coventry, operating on a fairly small budget back then, was still a strong achievement. Like Staying in the division was the mission. And they were achieving that season, excuse me, season after season. 94-95, there's a lot of excitement with Coventry City. Uh, Neil gets sacked on the 14th of November. And the next day, big Ron Atkinson appears 
as his successor. And Big Ron is the quintessential Coventry City manager of the 90s, despite the fact he was only there for about a year and a half and then he was promoted to director of football. He was moved upstairs. That's what used to happen to managers. Back in the day, there was no manager X has left the club by mutual consent. They get moved upstairs and they'd be put in some sort of role where they were getting their pay and they'd see out their contract. Oftentimes, they'd have very little decision-making power. Sometimes they'd have you know proper role like director of football or whatever, but sometimes they'd be put in like a consultancy position or they'd be put in charge of counting staples or so, whatever was going on. But Big Ron was one of the real characters of the game. Still, still obviously alive, but a lot of people remember some very unfortunate things that he said while commentating on games. But we should remember that as a manager, he did really well with West Brom. He did okay with Manchester United, not, not as good as they demanded. And that's why he was sacked and Ferguson was appointed. He went back to West Brom. He went to Atletico Madrid, Sheffield Wednesday. He had some success there. He did very well at Aston Villa. And then he took over at Coventry. He would end up managing Uh, Sheffield Wednesday and then Nottingham Forest again before retiring from management. But Big Ron was was a character. Big Ron was a big personality. He was flash. He was he was box office really. Like not in the way we think of now, but because we didn't have the same media coverage and whatever else. But Big Ron was the type of guy who was in the press. The press found him a fascinating person to cover. Coventry spent a decent amount of money in this season as well. And they signed some really good players. They signed John Filan, who was a solid goalkeeper and Aussie. They signed David Burrows, who was an excellent left back. Kevin Richardson, who's one of the most underrated players of his era. He'd been a star at Everton played for Watford, Arsenal, Real Sociedad, probably best known for his time at Aston Villa. Then he went to Coventry, a couple of good years there, Southampton, Barnsley, and then Blackpool. Only one cap for England. But Kevin Richardson was one of those midfielders that would run a game for you. You'd put him in the middle of the park, he wouldn't make mistakes, he'd do everything right. Think... Think Joe Allen... Like that type of midfielder, a little bit more combative. Allen's pretty combative himself, but maybe not as dynamic as Joe Allen, but that kind of midfielder, a very smart player. Um, Also coming in the door, Mike Marsh, who'd been quite a good player for Liverpool, having come through their academy, um, had been sent to West Ham, I think with Burroughs, in a deal for Julian Dix, which was a disaster for everybody involved. Yeah, Burroughs had spent one year at West Ham, joined Everton because he wanted to be back in the north. Didn't work out at Everton and ended up at Coventry, where, to be fair, he spent five years. Uh, Mike Marsh's time at Coventry was not quite as good. Uh, Stephen Presley arrived from Rangers. He's the guy who's gone into management. He was a decent centre-back. To add to the ex-Liverpool stock, They also signed Gary Gillespie, who'd had a really good run at Liverpool 
from 83 to 91. He'd been moved on to Celtic when Liverpool felt he was past his best. He'd been at Coventry in the late 70s and early 80s and was a very good centre-back. Never quite good enough to be sort of an every-game starter for Liverpool, but kind of a third centre-back who could play either side and was was reliable enough to give you six or seven out of ten every week. By the time he went back to Coventry, he was past his best and he didn't play a whole bunch. But the big money signing was Dion Dublin. Now, Dion Dublin was one of those players that could play centre-forward or centre-back. Like a poor man's Chris Sutton. He'd come through at Cambridge. Once he got moved up front, he started to score on a regular basis. Had attracted the attention of Alex Ferguson. Had joined Manchester United. Suffered quite a bad leg break. And didn't make the grade at United. Probably wasn't quite good enough for United even at that point. Um, But was very promising. Moved to Coventry and... He is, without question, a Coventry City legend. Would go on to play for Aston Villa, Millwall, Leicester, Celtic, and then Norwich in what was a long career that spanned from 88 to 2008. They also signed Gordon Strachan. Strachan had been a vital part of the Leeds team that had won the league title. He'd obviously made his name in Scotland. He was at Dundee, very good there. Moved to, Man- to to Aberdeen, rather. It was a vital part of Alex Ferguson's team at Aberdeen. Moved to Manchester United. Ferguson would follow two years later. It was expected that Strachan would be a key part of that team. And for the early years, he was. Ferguson decided at 32 that Strachan was past his best and shunted him out the door to Leeds. And it would come back to haunt him because Leeds would beat United to a title, and Strachan would go on to play for eight more years. After six years at Leeds, he moves to Coventry. At this point, he was past his best. But he wasn't just brought in to be a player. They brought him in because they had an eye on him becoming a manager, and he would become their manager a year after joining. That season... They finished 16th. They got to the fourth round of the FA Cup. They got knocked out in the third round of the League Cup. Dion Dublin scored six goals. Their attendance started to rise because Ron played good football. They started to spend a bit of money. And there was an excitement around the club. The following season, they signed Paul Telfer from Luton. John Salako from Crystal Palace. For some reason, for some reason, Big Ron loved to sign a player from Crystal Palace. They signed a very talented young Scottish midfielder called Owen Jess from Aberdeen. And Jess had been long tagged as this, you know, next great Scottish midfielder. It seems like, to me anyway, he stayed in Scotland too long with Aberdeen. Joined Coventry at 26 and was gone a year later. Hadn't really settled in in the Midlands. Went back up to Aberdeen, stayed there another four years. Would eventually come back south, play for Bradford, Nottingham Forest and Northampton. But he never quite hit the level that was expected of him 
as a young player. John Salako is one that's worth talking about, though. John Salako was a very talented left winger. An old-fashioned left winger. Chalk on your boots. Get round your man. Get crosses in. He'd been a great player for Crystal Palace. He was good for Coventry. He'd play for Fulham, Charlton, a good stint at Reading, and then finish off with Brentford. He won five England caps. I think he should have won more, personally. There wasn't a a raft of great English left-wingers at that point. Um, Injuries didn't help, I suppose, but Salako was a very good player. Liam Daish also arrived. He was another good player. Uh, He'd come through at Portsmouth, had made his name at Cambridge, gone to Birmingham, was seen as a very solid, reliable centre-back, went to Coventry, and was just plagued by injuries, unfortunately. They'd finished 16th again. Again, it was Dublin as the top scorer. Fourth round in both Cups. But, again, they were an interesting team to watch. 96-97. 5th of November, Atkinson gets promoted. Moves upstairs. Becomes director of football. How much football he was actually directing is open to interpretation. He seemed to have a permatan. Now, he was known for his love of the sunbeds, but he was also known for a love of a quick jaunt to Benidorm. Strachan takes over as manager. And they're, they're a fun team to watch. Like, there's no question they're a really fun team to watch. In the summer, they'd signed Gary McAllister, who's one of the, is one of the best midfielders the Premier League saw in the 90s. The, the thought was... He's passed his best, like Strachan. You know, he's going there to play with Strachan because they're close friends and it's it's the last bit of his career. He'll have a couple more years and then he'll retire. And in the end, I think he played there four years and then went on to Liverpool. Uh, they signed Reggie Gano from Standard Liège. They signed Darren Huckerby. We're going to talk about him. They signed Gary Breen. They signed Alexander... You have, you have Tushuk from uh, Dnipro, who, to my memory, never did much of anything at the club. Trond Agil Salzfed arrived. And this is around the time we start to see a lot of players coming into the Premier League from countries that you didn't know anything about in terms of the football. Like, we didn't know anything about Ukraine. This is before Dinamo Kiev had really... It emerged back onto the the scene with Shevchenko and and uh, Rebrov. Didn't the Norwegian players had started to trickle in in the preceding years? But Trondegil Salzfeld from Rosenberg was not someone that certainly was was well known. Um, Magnus Hedman arrived. Martin Johansson, or Johansson rather. Um, Gary Breen. Played for Ireland 63 times. Had a very good career. Uh, Came through at Charlton. Born in London. Came through at Charlton. Didn't make the grade. Went to Maidstone. Moved on to Gillingham. Peterborough. Birmingham. And at Birmingham, he really caught the eye. He looked like, for the era, for the mid-90s, he looked like a Rolls-Royce centre-back. Comfortable on the ball. Quick. Lean. Athletic. 
graceful, would move on to Coventry and spent five years there before joining West Ham. Didn't quite work out. I don't know what the situation was. He moved on to Sunderland, then Wolves, and then Barnet. But Gary Breen was a good defender, and he was very good for Coventry over his time there. Darren Huckerby, I've talked about him before. He was a fun player to watch. He was short. He was bustly. He was skillful. He was a scrappy, scruffy kind of dribbler. Like, imagine a quicker but not nearly as talented version of Luis Suarez. Like, that same type, or, or Tevez, that same sort of, you know, little ratter running around, snapping at defenders' heels, bundling the ball past them, scruffy finishes, did score some fantastic goals over the years. It was really good for Coventry. He'd come through at Lincoln, joined Newcastle, didn't make the grade at the tune, had a loan at Millwall, joined Coventry, was very, very good. Went on to play for Leeds, Man City, Nottingham Forest, Norwich. Is probably best known for his spell at Norwich, but it was Coventry where he really caught the eye first and then finished off playing for San Jose Earthquakes. Um, he's recently made a tit of himself by claiming that Rio Ferdinand was far better than Virgil van Dijk, which just isn't true. And then listing a bunch of strikers from the era Rio played in, some of whom Rio never played against, and most of whom weren't in the league at the same time as each other. But Darren Huckerby was a good player. And that season, they finished 17th, just about survived, one point ahead of Sunderland. They got to the fifth round of the FA Cup and the third round of the League Cup. In 97-98, they finish 11th. So a big improvement on the previous season. They bring in Roland Nielsen. Talked about him before. An outstanding right back. Always super reliable. They signed George Boateng, who's a really good midfielder who would go on to have a very good career. Uh, Firel Moldovan brought in from Grasshoppers for a big fee, 3.25 million. And uh, Philippe Clement arrived as well, who's obviously now the manager of Rangers. And he was a ball playing mid, a ball playing defender who didn't make, just didn't work out, just didn't make the grade in the Premier League, wasn't quite up to the physical side of the game. Um, would go back to play in Belgium for Club Bruges and was, was really good there, to be fair to him. And he's made a decent career for himself as a manager. Uh, Moldovan was someone that was expected to do really well. He'd played for Gloria, Dinamo Bucharest, uh, Neuchatel and Grasshoppers. Neuchatel and Grasshoppers, obviously, in uh, Switzerland. The other two previous to that in Romania. He'd scored goals for Fulnick Grasshoppers, 44 goals in 51 games in his one season there, one and a bit season. And he was expected to come to Coventry and provide them with the goals that Strachan felt they were lacking. In the end, he played 10 games, scored one goal and was away at the door off to Fenerbahce, where he did really well. And then he did really well at Nantes after that. 70 caps for Romania, 25 goals. Another one that's gone into management, though, to no real success. But the two that stand out from that group are Roland Nielsen, who was an excellent defender. 
he'd played for Helsingborg and then IFK Gothenburg. He'd come to the Premier League to play with Sheffield Wednesday and he was outstanding for them. He really was outstanding for them. And when he was 31, he left and went home. Went back to Sweden and that was expected to be the last we saw of him. But at 34, he arrives at Coventry. And for two years, he was very, very reliable at right back. He went back to Helsingborg and then came back for another spell with Coventry. He's never someone that will stand out to you if you're thinking of, like if people are listing their 10 or whatever amount best right backs in Premier League history. Unfortunately for him, he only has the couple of seasons at Sheffield Wednesday. If all five of his seasons at Sheffield Wednesday had been Premier League seasons, he would be on your list. That's how good he was and how consistent he was. And he was very good for Coventry, despite the fact that by the time he joined them, he was 34. He was voted the greatest ever Sheffield Wednesday right back in a poll done in 2007. Uh, George Boateng, I always liked. A proper combative, ball-winning midfielder. Ghanaian by birth, Dutch international, played for Excelsior, made his name at Feyenoord, joined Coventry, had a great year there, went on to Aston Villa where he was very good, was good at Borough, was good at Hull, and then his career kind of petered out, but by that point he was 35. He's currently an assistant coach with the um, Ghanaian national team, having spent a number of years coaching in the Aston Villa Academy. As I said, they finished 11th. It's a big jump for them. No risk of relegation. They get to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, which is a really good run. They get to the fourth round of the League Cup. Dion Dublin scores 23 goals in all competitions, including 18 in the Premier League, which allowed him a share of the Premier League golden boot. Best season of his career by a considerable margin. 98-99, they finish 15th to get to the fifth round of the FA Cup, third round of the League Cup. Dion Dublin leaves and he joins Aston Villa a couple of months into the season for big money. They sign Robert Yarny, one of the best left-backs in Europe. It's a massive shock that they sign Robert Yarny. Two weeks later, they sell Robert Yarny. Never kicks the ball for them. He goes to Real Madrid. Now, the conspiracy here is, the, the, the official party line is, he didn't like England. He got to Coventry, didn't like it, and immediately wanted to leave. That's the official party line. The conspiracy theory is that Real Betis refused to sell him to Real Madrid. And Coventry somehow got approached as an in-between. Probably Big Ron still, you know, involved in a few things, pulling a few strings, offering up some dodgy deals, taking a little cut for himself. But Coventry had Yarny as a player for two weeks, made 800 grand, which at the time... Significant money. At the time, 800 grand bought you a good squad player. Might not buy you a starter anymore, as it would have done a few years previously, but it would buy you a good solid squad player or a good young player. 
They signed Steve Froggett, another fun left winger, coming in from Wolves. John Aloisi arrived from Portsmouth. Yusuf Chippo arrived. He was a good player. But the the feeling was with Chippo that the reason he was signed was basically to keep Mustafa Hadji company. Like I said, Chippo was a good player, had a good career, had done fairly well at, at Porto, did well for Coventry in his time at the club, had a great career for Morocco. Uh, Steve Froggett, as I said, really fun winger, played for Villa, came through their academy, had moved on to Wolves. That's where he's best known for. Suffered badly with hamstring injuries. Retired quite early. I think he was only 28 or 29. Just couldn't couldn't get himself fit. And when he did get fit, he was the victim of an absolutely horrific tackle by Nicky Summerby, who was playing for Sunderland at the time. Uh, he now works as a personal trainer, which I wasn't aware of. Steve, Steve Froggett was a fun player. Mustafa Hadji, though, was definitely... He's the best player to play for Coventry in the Premier League era. Now, he's only there a couple of years. But he was absolutely sensational to watch. He'd made his name with Nancy in France, moved to Sporting, then moved to Deportivo La Coruña, had done pretty well in both places. He came to Coventry because of the lure of the Premier League and the money that was on offer. He spent two years there. He joined Aston Villa. Then he would play for Espanyol again, Espanyol, and then kind of his career petered out with smaller clubs, but 63 caps for Morocco and 12 goals. He was, to my memory at least, the first player in the Premier League to observe Ramadan. And I remember there was quite a lot of hand-wringing over the fact that he was doing his fasting and how will it affect his performance? What does this mean? Yada, yada, yada. There was endless, endless articles about it, including quite a lot of nonsense that wasn't in any way true. But Mustafa Hadji, for those two years that he was there, I think he is the best player Coventry had in the Premier League era. Noel Whelan is an interesting addition to this squad that's worth uh, a little chat. There's also Richard Shaw, uh, another player who I, I missed his arrival. But Richard Shaw arrives in from Crystal Palace. Uh, once again, Big Ron funneling some money to, to his friends at Palace. Uh, Richard Shaw was really good for Coventry. He'd come in in 95 from Palace. Undersized centre-back, but tough as nails, quick, great 1v1 defender. The type that, if you could, you'd stick him as a man-marker and you'd just tell him to trail people. He would stick with Coventry when they went down. He was very, very loyal to the club. Felt he owed the club the fact that he was part of the relegation. Um, he's a decent laugh now on Twitter as well. Richard Shaw is someone that I have a lot of time for as a player. And um, 
he was a caretaker manager at Millwall and he's been a coach at a couple of different clubs. Not sure where he's coaching. Oh, he's coaching Watford now, coaching at Watford now. Uh, he spent a long time coaching at Crystal Palace. Um, Noel Whelan, who was also brought in under Big Ron from Leeds, was a tall, rangy, Danny Welbeck type. He Like that that number nine who's not really a number nine who plays in the wing, but he isn't really a winger because he belongs to the middle and he kind of got caught between the two and he never fully developed into what he could have been. But Noel Whelan was a good player for Coventry in the five years he was there. And in this 98-99 season, he was their top scorer, uh, 13 goals in all competitions. Overall, a disappointing season uh, for Coventry, but a season that's notable because the announcement was made that year that Coventry were to leave Highfield Road and they were to move to a new stadium, which was to hold 45,000 people. Now, in the end, they didn't move for many years, didn't move till 2005. I think they were meant to move originally in 2002. So they move in 2005, the stadium holds about 33,000, becomes known as the Rico Arena, it's been known as the City of Coventry Stadium, and is now known as the Coventry Building Society, Building Society Stadium. Um, it's actually a nice stadium. It's a little bit soulless, though. It's that era of stadiums that were built. The one in Milton Keynes is quite similar. It was built in a way where it could easily be expanded if Coventry got back into the Premier League. That's why they toned down the design, because there was no point in building a 45,000-seater stadium for a club that weren't going to be in the Premier League. Now, it's questionable whether they were going to be able to attract 45,000 anyway, considering their home attendance on average was about 20,000 by this point. But they had plans, they had ambitions, and unfortunately, in some ways, that stadium is one of the big reasons for Coventry's demise. Um, 99-2000, again, Strachan, I should point out, is still the manager. Joining the club, you have Carlton Palmer, uh, a figure of fun from any, but it must be said, Carlton Palmer was a good Premier League midfielder. Now, was he good enough to play for England 18 times? No. But he was a, a good Premier League midfielder who'd done a good job with West Brom. At Sheffield Wednesday, he was very good. He was decent at Leeds. He was okay at Southampton. He didn't work out at Forest, but when he joined Coventry, he was well past his best. He was brought in more for experience to fill out the squad. And there's a few decent decent performances that he had in his time at Highfield Road. Colin Hendry arrived from Rangers. He'd obviously been part of that great Blackburn team that won the league. He'd gone to Rangers. He was well, well past any point of being useful. He was 35. Coventry paid a decent chunk of money to buy him. I think six, seven hundred grand. Uh, he didn't work out. But the big money signing was Robbie Keane. And Robbie Keane had broken through at Wolves, made a name for himself, become one of the most exciting young players in English football. 
And it was assumed that he was playing in the first division, I should point out, not in the Premier League. It was assumed that one of the big clubs would jump in and get him. And Coventry surprised everybody by paying six million to bring him in, which was way above what they paid. Uh, I think Mustafa Hadji might have been the record signing before, and he was four million. Um, he'd only stay the one year, but he was very, very good in that year. He was ostensibly signed to replace Darren Huckerby with Huckerby funding most of the fee. Uh, Huckerby moved on to Leeds. George Boateng also left. Uh, he went to Aston Villa. Keane would be the top scorer in the league with 12. McAllister was top scorer in all competitions with 13. They finished 14th in the league. They got to the fourth round of the FA Cup, the fourth round of the League Cup. They're a good team. They're not a great team. They're just a solid pain in the arse to play with some talent. Cedric Russell was decent. Noel Whelan was still decent. Robbie Keane was very good. Chippa was good. Hadji was outstanding. McAllister might be the one that's better than Hadji, to be fair. McAllister might be their best Premier League era player. But but there's like there's good players. Paul Williams, Richard Shaw, David Burroughs, Gary Breen, Paul Telfer. Like it's a solid squad. And from a Coventry point of view, a notable thing that happened this year was the emergence of Chris Kirkland, who would obviously go on to move to Liverpool for huge money a couple of years later. But Chris Kirkland, when he came on the scene, and he, play, and he played once or twice in this season, but he was like, this is the next David Seaman. This is the, the, the guy that England have been waiting for. He's the one that's going to take over the England job for the next 15 years. England have had this great run of goalkeepers from Banks to Shilton and Clements to Seaman. You had like Nigel Martin and Tim Flowers and those I've talked about before in that squad in the 90s as well. And Kirkland is going to be the one that carries it into the 2000s. That was that was the common view. In the end, he only won one cap and didn't have anywhere close to the career he should have had. Injuries, a big factor, but he has also talked about personal issues that affected him. But, you know, with, with Kirkland and Keane, there was a feeling of this could be, you know, the start of Coventry building a, a young team with some very good veteran players around them. Wasn't so much to be. In 2000, 2001, Keane was gone. McAllister was gone. Burroughs was gone. Whelan was gone. Hendry left during the season. Roussel left during the season. And the players signed just didn't work out. A young Jay Boothroyd. David Thompson signed from Liverpool. A young Craig Bellamy. And Lee Carsley signed from Blackburn. Unfortunately for Coventry, these players didn't really work out. Bellamy was talented. He played well, but he scored six goals in the league. That wasn't going to be enough. The season before, they'd gotten doubled that out of Keane. Jay Boothroyd coming in as a young player with no experience, 
the hope was that he could hit the ground running. He didn't score that season. I think ultimately Jay Boothroy disappointed in his career for the talent that he had. He showed flashes, particularly when he was at Cardiff, but that's eight years later. It was too much to expect him to come in and perform straight away. That's kind of what there was, and he just wasn't up to the task. Coventry go down. They finish 19th. Eight points from safety. Manchester City, by the way, also relegated that same season, as were Bradford. And that brought to the to an end Coventry City's top flight tenure, which had begun in 1967. And 34 years later, it came to an end. But the feeling at the time was they'll go down, they'll come back up. That's what's going to happen. They'll go down, they'll come back up. It just wasn't to be. They went down and they stayed down. They finished 11th in what we now call the championship in that first year. Strachan was sacked. The whole thing was a mess. The following season, they finished 20th. McAllister's back as player-manager. But they're not good. They're not good at all. Things start to look like they're turning around in 03 or 04. They finish 12th. Can they build on that? No, they can't. 19th the year after. Then 8th. Little bit of hope. Then 17th. Then 21st. Then 17th. Then 19th. At this point, they're floating just above relegation year after year. 18th in 10-11. And then a disastrous 11-12. 23rd and relegated to the third tier. Surely they'll bounce back up. No. Mark Robbins has his first spell as manager there. Doesn't go well. They finish 15th in League One. 13-14. They finish 18th in League One. 17th in League One. 8th in League One. Might be turning around here. Maybe things are on the up for them. Yes, their stadium situation is a mess. Yes, the squad lacks everything. But Adam Armstrong has had a really good season. He gets 20 goals for them. Then it's just another disastrous season. 16-17, they finish 23rd, and they're relegated to League 2. Now, bear in mind, League 2 is the old Division 4. Coventry hadn't been in that division since 1958-59, but here they are now. But the good news is Mark Robbins takes over just before the end of the season after first Tony Mowbray and then Russell Slade were sacked. And Robbins turns things around. 17-18, promoted from League 2 into League 1 via the playoffs. 
18-19, a solid season back in League One. They finish eighth. 19-20, they finish first. And they're back in the championship. 16th, settling in. No risk of relegation. 12th, improvement. 5th, beaten in the playoff final. This season, Coventry are 20th in the championship. Is that right? That's not accurate. They're not 20th at the moment. Championship table. I think they're 15th, aren't they? Have they dropped? They're 15th. They're 15th. That's a little bit outdated. It's before their last win. They might have been in 20th after some other games took place. But they're 15th at the moment. Now, they're not 15th and looking up. They're 15th with teams below them very, very close. They're a, you know, they're a long way out of the playoffs, but they're only eight points out of the playoffs. So there is still time for Coventry to get their act together this season. This is a tough season for them. They've lost key players in Yokerez and Hammer. They've spent significant money to bring in some new players. Not all of them have hit the ground running. A couple of them look very promising. I'm going to dig into some of them, not on the pod, but just because what else will I be doing in my spare time uh, in the next couple of weeks? But I'm hopeful of a second half of the season charge from Coventry City. Because I really want to see Coventry City back in the Premier League. Because for me, growing up in the era I grew up in, Coventry City are a top flight club. They belong in the top flight. They're now back playing at the Coventry Building Society Arena after a bit of a a nomadic existence in recent years. And it's great. It's great that they have a proper home again, a city in their own, a stadium in their own city where their fans can call home, where their fans can have something that belongs to them. I'm hopeful that we see Coventry City back in the Premier League really soon. I don't think it's going to happen this season, but Mark Robbins is a really good manager and I wouldn't rule it out entirely. We'll go to break. We'll come back. We'll just do the gossip and we'll be done. See you in a sec. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Right, welcome back. So, uh, just a quick bit of news. Cristiano Ronaldo is facing a, cl- a class action lawsuit in the United States over his promotion of Binance, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world. The plaintiffs claim his endorsements led to them making loss-making investments. They are seeking damages of a sum exceeding 1 billion US dollars. The BBC have contacted both Ronaldo's management company and Binance for comment. In November 2022, Binance announced its first CR7 collection of NFTs in partnership with Ronaldo, which the footballer said would reward fans for all the years of support. And it turns out all it did was take the money off because it's all a big scam. Wow. These class action suits in America most often get thrown out. But there was recently uh, a ruling by the US Justice Department that Binance would have to pay $3.4 billion in penalties and, for, uh, and uh, forfeitures, which is a bit mad. Um, Major League Baseball, Formula One, and Mercedes-Benz are also all facing class action lawsuits filed on the same day over their promotion of failed crypto exchange FTX. Um, wow. I don't imagine Cristiano is ever, well, he's certainly not going to go to America to go to court, is he? But I don't imagine he's ever actually going to have to pay any money towards this. I just don't see it happening. Um, Let's just do the gossip and be done for today. Chelsea are prepared to reject Fulham's interest in Armando Brogia in January. Arsenal are willing to let Aaron Ramsdale leave at the end of the season, but will not let him go in the January transfer window. Makes sense. Dutch midfielder Donny van der Beek says he will make January move away from Manchester United if he does not stay start playing more games. He's also revealed that a summer transfer to Real Sociedad fell through. I think we, were, we knew that at the time. Uh, what a waste of time Donny van der Beek to United has been for all parties. Manchester United are hoping to hoping to strengthen in four positions in January. <laughs> okay. Uh, Tottenham are ready to rival Manchester United and Liverpool for the signature of Nice's 23-year-old French defender Jean-Claire Tadibo. I'm hoping Liverpool can sign him. He'd be a great, a great addition. Be a great addition for any club. Spurs don't really have. Well, yeah, they kind of do, considering injury worries over Van de Ven and suspension worries over. Romero. So yeah, um, Tottenham want to sign Portuguese winger Jota on loan from Saudi Pro League side Al Itahad. He's obviously played for Ange in Scotland with Celtic, uh, and there's been it's been really weird what's gone on with him since he moved to Saudi Pro League. So we'll see. Paris Saint Germain are ready to sell Hugo Ekatiki in January with Newcastle, West Ham, and Crystal Palace all interested. Uh, I think Palace is the one that makes the most sense of that group. French defender 
Raphael Varane and England midfielder Mason Mount are among Manchester United players at risk of being replaced. Mason Mount only moved four months ago for £60 million. Um, Surely someone in charge has got to go to the manager and say, well, hang on a second. You insisted on him. You bought him. So what was the plan? Surely the manager's got to take some some flack for this. Uh, Bayern Munich have discussed the possibility of signing Varane, but do not think it is a realistic possibility. Um, Tottenham are interested in Adam Wharton of Blackburn. He is a very good player. Ukraine and Chelsea winger Mikhailo Mudrik wants to wants the club to sign his former Shakhtar Donetsk and national teammate, Georgi Sudikov, in the January transfer window. Um, Sudikov's a good player. I don't know that he's Chelsea level just at this moment in time. Like, and they're loaded with midfielders. So I don't really see what the purpose of that kind of move for Chelsea would be. But he's definitely someone that would do well in the Premier League. England under-17 forward Mason Kotcher has been training with Arsenal's first-team squad after leaving Sunderland, but the Gunners face competition from Rangers for the 17-year-old, uh, 17-year-old forward's signature. Interesting. Manchester United are interested in 29-year-old Lazio goalkeeper Ivan Provadal, but the Serie A club will only sell for $30 million. Again, the guy spent $50 million on a goalkeeper. He can't be allowed to buy, and he bought a good backup. He can't be allowed to buy any more goalkeepers. Germany striker Timo Werner is prepared to stay at RB Leipzig and fight for his place rather than move to Manchester United in January. Okay. Chelsea do not have an agreement in place with Corinthians for 18-year-old Gabriel Moscardo, and a move for the Brazilian is not imminent. But PSG and a number of other Premier League clubs are keen on the player, with Corinthians holding out for $26 I really want Liverpool to get him. I really, really want Liverpool to get him. Borussia Dortmund winger Daniel Malin remains a key target for Jurgen Klopp. No, he doesn't. Arsenal are considering a January move for Benjamin Sesko. Uh, this is an exclusive from Steve K, who, as we know, is an enormous spoofer. And finally, Real Betis have not given up hope of persuading Guido Rodriguez to reject Manchester United and Barcelona and stay with the Seville club. Uh, probably hard to reject moves that aren't actually available to you, you know. So it should be easy enough for them to convince them to stay. Right, folks, that'll do. Talk to you tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.